in the spirit of Christmas, let's hear from our own bearded, jolly, old saint. Oh, oh, oh. St. Gregory. St. Gregory. I can't say that I have any Christmas memories of way down in the bottom, but it does bring back flashbacks of ZZ Top. I, I, whenever we sing that, I always want to go, hey, hey, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Way down in the bottom. You'll have to excuse me if I sound a little bit nasally. I've had this, like, uh, uh, head cold for the last three weeks. It just won't go away. I never really get sick. It's just, you know, it's like that log jam behind your nose and all the snots back there. And So if I'm sounding a little bit nasally, it's because I am. So just you know, put up with me, and we'll see how it goes. Um, I had a, I heard this this last week that uh, over 70% of all U.S. spending happens between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And that there's a lot of retailers who their whole profit for the year is made between Thanksgiving and Christmas. It drives the economy. It's, it's a little bit ironic that, that if we didn't have Jesus' birthday to celebrate, our economy would tank. It's like, thank God for Jesus, otherwise our, 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 it'd be bad. But... Um, we feel the pull to spend more this time of year than any other time of the year. Now, there's always, in this culture, uh, it, it runs on pulling people into spending more and more. And that's just what keeps things running. So there's always this pull that is there. But this time of year, that pull is on steroids. And so we thought it would be good to uh, use this as an opportunity for kingdom people to take a step back and to look at what our relationship is to that pull the pull of the culture to spend, what our relationship is to money, what our relationship is to wealth, uh, to ask the question, are, are we uh, reflecting in how we spend our money? Are we reflecting kingdom priorities or are we just reflecting American priorities? And so we're doing this series uh, that we're calling Through His Brother's Eyes, Christmas Through His Brother's Eyes. And we're referring to James here. That's the brother of Jesus. And we're doing a little three-week study out of the book of James because he's got a lot to say on this topic. Um, and uh, uh, just pulling out little nuggets there for us to chew on um, to reassess sort of how, where we're at in terms of our priorities and values and things of that sort. So I, I'm entitling this message, Occupy the Kingdom, uh, for reasons that you probably can't guess at, uh, but it'll hopefully become clear, clear a little bit later on. Occupy the Kingdom. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I thank you for the spirit that is in this place right now was just kind of hovering over us during the worship service. I pray, Lord God, that you'd take this message. We're together praying as your people, praying that you'd take this message, God, and infuse it with your authority and to impact every one of us in this congregation, everyone listening through podcasts, television, any other way, Lord God, wherever they're at. Just make it a kingdom encounter, Lord, where you just infuse these words with your power to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to bring the kingdom to every area of our life, and so that the way we spend our time and resources and money and everything else would really reflect your values. That, we'll, what, that our heart would be broken by what breaks your heart. We'd be moved by what moves your heart. and We'd be overjoyed with what overjoys your heart. Bring the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen. 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 Occupy the kingdom. Before I read the passage that I want to kind of reflect on this morning uh, from James 5, and I'm going to tell you up front, I'm going to give you a warning that this is a hard, hard hitting passage. But to set up a context for us to understand that passage, I want to do a little bit of what I did last week when we, we jumped into kind of James's head 
and, and got into the world of James. And I want to look at that a little bit to set the context for the discussion that's going to follow. Uh, Jesus and James, his, his, their mother, uh, they, they were part of the peasantry of first century Judaism. They were, they were dirt poor peasants. And to appreciate what that is like, we need to understand that, um, so far as we can tell, about 95% of the people in Palestine were peasants, like James and Jesus. 95% of the people. 5% were extremely wealthy. The other 95% were extremely poor. The 5% that were really wealthy were folks like Herod and Pilate and their, the royal family. They were really wealthy. Uh, they had the aristocrats, the businessmen, the politicians. Uh, you know, they didn't run for office. They inherited an office. And so all the senators were part of this 5%. Um, Religious leaders, some of the religious leaders, the Sadducees, were part of that very wealthy 5%. Because the folks were all, the populace was very religious, and so these people had, had power over the populace. And many of them used that power to earn a lot of money for themselves, and so they got into that top 5%. But that's how it ran. 5% very, very wealthy, 95% very, very poor, no middle class whatsoever. Most of these peasants, the 95%, uh, were farmers, though some had trades, like Joseph was a carpenter. Uh, some would, would make a living that way, but, but uh, they lived off the land, pretty much. And uh, uh, the, the, the life they had was, was one of just bare subsistence. Everybody was one bad crop or one serious illness away from having a total catastrophe. Uh, life for the peasant farmer was, was uh, precarious and hard. They were taxed enormously. Uh, they had to pay taxes to Caesar because they're part of the Roman Empire, right? And they had to pay taxes, a separate tax to Herod because he was the king of the Jews. And then they had to pay another tax to uh, the, the, the priesthood because um, it was a temple tax. That, that was their tithe, the 10%. It was required in, in the Old Testament law. So they had taxes all over the place. Living a subsistence lifestyle, kind of living, and, and yet they've got to pay all these taxes. And to make matters worse, um, they kept on going up. The taxes kept on going up. Around the time of Jesus, Herod kept on jacking up the taxes. This guy was a megalomaniac. He was constantly building stuff. Uh, he wanted to sort of immortalize his name by the stuff that he built. So he was building stadiums and, and coliseums and palaces, mansions, fortresses, cities, uh, seaports, and most of all, the temple. Uh, his whole lifetime was spent constructing this seventh wonder of the world, this, this temple. And so it was an, an incredible uh, undertaking, and the ones who paid for it were most of all the peasants. Always going up. So the situation was just nasty. What would happen is if, if you couldn't pay your taxes, uh, you were in, in serious trouble. You had to find some wealthy person who would give you a loan, and they'd give you that loan by putting a lien on your your little hut, and on the land that you owned. And then if you couldn't pay that loan, uh, then what would happen is they would just confiscate your, your home and the land. And now it would go to the wealthy person. Uh, the family would ordinarily stay on that land, uh, but now they didn't own it, they just rented it. They, they, were, they, they were the tenants. There's still only one, one illness or one bad crop away from being out on the streets, however, because if they couldn't make their rent, they had to take out another loan. And if they couldn't pay that loan, well, then the, the wealthy landowner would sometimes come and uh, either throw them out on the street. If he wanted to do that, he could confiscate their kids if they had kids and make them indentured servants. 
in his own household or lease them out to one of his rich buddies. Um, they could be thrown into debtor's prison. A lot of terrible stuff could happen. What some of these folks did is they sort of consolidated all the poor folks on a little plot of land so they could make their rent. Um, and so now these folks are all just kind of crammed on a little village in, in, in terrible uh, conditions. They would, uh, if you were thrown out on the street, thrown off the land, uh, you had to live by the good graces of fa- friends and family. Someone had to take you in, which was tough because the, the size of the little huts that these poor folks lived in, I have actually seen some of those over in Israel. They were, they, were, they were smaller than our efficiency apartments, and frequently there was five to ten people living in that little, little place. Uh, typically they would have two rooms, uh, a wall that would divide these two rooms, and the two rooms would be all-purpose rooms, and that's where everybody lived, that's where everybody ate, that's where everyone stayed. So it's not like you have a lot of spare guest rooms to invite friends in when they get thrown out on the street. Uh, it, was, it, it, was, it was tough. If you're, out, if you're off the land, um, then to make a living, what you had to do was kind of rent yourself out as a day laborer. And the way this worked is you'd go down to the city. Um, most of the, the, the uh, rich folks lived in, in, the, in the city, whereas the peasants were out in the rural area. So you'd go into the city, uh, Caesarea or Jerusalem, and uh, there'd be a place there where uh, the day laborers would go. And if uh, a wealthy person needed some work to be done, for whatever reasons, they would send a servant and a servant would kind of just pick and choose who they wanted uh, to come and work for them that day. You'd usually work 12 hours or more uh, for the day, and you'd get a denarii for that, which would be about enough to put food on the table, but not, not, nothing more than that. Sometimes, if you were lucky, you'd get hired for a week or a month. If there's a prolonged job and the, and the wealthy person happened to like you, uh, you could get a semi-permanent uh, work that way. But sometimes it would happen that you'd put in a day or a week or a month, and then you wouldn't get paid for whatever reason. Maybe you ticked somebody off. Whatever reason, you wouldn't get paid. And when you didn't get paid, there's nothing you could do about it. You could complain, but no one's going to listen to you. This, this, uh, the top 5%, they have all the power. They have all the rights. It's a good old boys club, and, and no one's going to listen to you if you're complaining about what one of their friends did to you. So life at this time as a Jewish peasant was, was really, really difficult. Uh, the rich were getting richer, and the poor were getting poor. It was a system that was grotesquely unjust. These wealthy people were just gobbling up land and getting more and more of an income, and the poor folks were, were, were suffering as a result. It was a system that was completely locked. There's no mobility here. You, you can't like work your way up into this inner circle. Um, whether you're one of the 5% that are very wealthy or one of the 95% that are very poor is completely a matter of luck. It has nothing to do with your work ethic. It has nothing to do with your talents. It has nothing to do with uh, you know, any merit at all. It's, it's, it's simply a matter of luck. Whose family were you born into? Born lucky, you're in the 5%. Born unlucky, you're in the 95%. And because the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer, there was growing animosity on the part of the poor towards the rich. We we have several accounts of uh, peasant revolts. People would just get so frustrated, they would would protest. Go down, and we we have now Occupy Wall Street. Uh, They would have Occupy Jerusalem or Occupy Caesarea, and, and they would just erupt. But back in those days, they didn't have pepper spray to control, uh, control the crowds. They used swords. And so sometimes there'd be these slaughtering that would go on as these peasants would uh, be put back in their place. It was a, it was a uh, grotesquely unjust system that benefited a few and op- oppressed the masses. 
Now, that is the situation that Jesus and James were raised in, and that's the situation that James is writing out of. As we read this passage, we need to remember this this sociological, political, economic context. Uh, He's going to have some harsh words to say to the rich. When he says these words, he's not doesn't have in mind any particular wealthy people in the congregation he's writing to, because in all likelihood there weren't any wealthy people in his congregation. Though we know that a few visited, because uh, James chastises his his congregation for showing favoritism towards them. But uh, what he has in mind here is rather a class of people who are exploiting everybody else and oppressing everybody else. James steps into the role of of a prophet. His, his, the six verses we're going to read here sound a whole lot like what you read in Amos or in Isaiah or Hosea uh, as they, they wax eloquent in, in these diatribes against the rich. This is what James is doing as he's now going to blast this class of people. So uh, I'll read six verses. I'll break it into two parts um, and make a few comments in between each one, and then we'll launch into the, the message itself. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. The moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The connotation is that they're already corroded. They're already eaten. They're already destroyed. Their corrosion, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Merry Christmas, everybody. This is a, a joyful message here. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. All right, uh, let's pause for a moment. This, this concept of last days refers to the last epoch of world history. This, this last interval between the, uh, the, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. This interval between the victory that he won and it, its manifestation at the end of, of, of history. Uh, This is an interval uh, in in the perspective of the New Testament. It's this interval where Jesus has, in principle, already defeated Satan, but we don't yet see fully manifested that that defeat and Jesus' victory, but we will when the kingdom is fully manifested. We're in this in-between time. And see, that's why James, writing from this, this New Testament perspective, he can, he can, he can describe the, the wealth of these folks as already being destroyed. He says, it's already been rotted. The moths have already eaten your clothes. The gold and silver are already corroded. Uh, because in principle, the old world system that that wealth was a part of has already passed away. And in principle, the kingdom uh, has already come. We don't yet see it clearly, but it, is, it has in principle already come. So that's why he speaks in the present tense. He uses graphic imagery here because he's giving a dire warning. And, and the warning is, is basically this. When you cling to treasures that are already corroded, but you cling to them as though they weren't, then they end up corroding you. When you cling to stuff that has already, in principle, passed away, then you pass away with it. That's kind of the logic of this passage. That's why he says that the corrosion of that wealth will testify against you. Will testify against you. Because it will reveal where your treasure has has always been. As it's corroded, it corrodes you. And the day of judgment is simply turning the lights on and saying what is true, what is true. And so when the kingdom fully comes and the lights turned on and we see what is true, what will be true is that you've been clinging to this wealth that has already passed away and therefore you're passing away with it. Its corrosion will testify against you. 
it will corrode you. That's why he goes on to say then that it will eat your flesh like fire. What a lovely image. Um, It's a metaphor that denotes total painful destruction. The riches that you cling to are eating you alive. That's what he's saying. Notice there that it's not God who's going to eat their flesh. Uh, It's the riches that will eat their flesh. The corrosion of the riches that they're clinging to. Uh, That is their judgment. Their judgment is simply the natural consequence of them clinging to stuff that has already passed away. God is the judge in the sense that he turns the light on, but the actual destruction comes from the riches that they're clinging to. Okay, then James goes on and says this. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Once again, Merry Christmas. Okay, this theme of of, uh, injustice crying out is what we find throughout the Bible. uh, That uh, when people are oppressed, their oppression uh, reaches the throne room of God. When, when, When people are cheated... Uh, the injustice of that reaches the throne room of God, and judgment is coming. And so to this class, this 5% uh, of people who are extremely wealthy at everyone else's expense, what, what James is saying is, you lived in luxury while others were suffering, and your luxury was purchased by making them suffer. You contributed to their suffering by the luxury that you enjoyed. And uh, uh, that while others were in need, you indulged yourself. You had more than you needed and you hoarded it while others had less than they needed. And uh, the injustice of that rises to the throne room of God. He says that you have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. And really interesting metaphor here. You fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. Uh, the, the imagery is simply of a, of a, of a cow or, or a lamb that is fed a great deal in order to prepare it for a meal. Um, now, the cow and the lamb, are, they're living, they're, 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 they think they're living the high life. Man, uh, the owner's giving us as much food as we want. This is wonderful. How lucky are we? So he's eating, 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 get fatter and fatter and fatter. Uh, they don't know about that meal that's coming. Well, James is saying the same thing. He's saying, when you consume and consume and consume and consume, it tastes good. You're living the high life right now. Man, you got it lucky, but what you got to know is that that's all going to come back on you. What you're eating is poison and is going to end up killing you. Harsh words, confrontational words to those who get wealthy at the expense of others. Now, here, here's the thing. I, we might easily think that this applies to other people. Um, you know, James is talking about those other rich people. Like, like he's, it's clearly, he's... Those CEOs who voted to give themselves these incredible million-dollar bonuses after we, with our hard-earned tax dollars, bought out the banks that they drove into the ground because of giving out uh, predatory loans, uh, those are the folks that James clearly has in mind. It's the Donald Trumps of the world. It's the, it's the ridiculously rich 1% of America that owns 27% of the wealth. Or it's the ridiculously rich 1% of the globe uh, that owns 40% of the world's wealth. That's an actual fact. Um, that's clear. Those are the people that James has in mind, right? Not us. In fact, we might hear get Wall, that Occupy Wall Street movement in mind. Uh, you know, we are the 99% here, folks. We're the ones being oppressed, all right? And James is one of us. He's on our side. Go, James. He's sticking it to them, those fat cats who, who, who pocket all this money while we're being thrown on the street because we can't pay our mortgages, we don't have jobs, and we can't support our families. That's who James is going after. Amen? 
You know better. <laughs> See, I, I, I think that this warning, the warning at least applies to moi, me. And I, I suspect it applies to a lot of us in this, in this auditorium or listening through podcasts. It doesn't apply to all of us. There are an increasing number of, of, uh, of poor folks who attend Woodland Hills Church. God bless you. And there's an increasing number of poor folks in America. The gap between the rich and the poor is growing uh, at an alarming rate, has been for the last couple of decades. So it doesn't apply to everybody, but it does apply to a lot of it. It, it, a lot of, it certainly applies to me. I'm not rich by American standards. I'm, I'm, I'm right in the middle, middle of the middle class. Um, but by historic standards and by global standards, I'm very rich. In fact, if, if you are a family of four and make $50,000, which ain't a lot by American standards for a family of four, but if you're making $50,000 in your family of four, that puts you somewhere between the top 5 to 10% of people on the planet. You're rich by world standards. The thing is, we don't feel rich. Probably very few people listening to this message right now feel rich. In fact, we feel strapped. No, we, we, we're, we're, we're like, how can I possibly be rich when I have trouble making my mortgage payment? I have trouble paying for my, my cars and I have trouble, you know, uh, buying new clothes and I have trouble, you know, getting adequate presents for my kids and I, I have trouble paying the utility bills. How can you call me rich when I'm strapped? There's such pressure on me to pay these bills. Got that. Got that for sure. But see, to a certain degree, that's because we've bought into a culture that is always pulling us in the direction of living beyond our means, or at least living at the very edge of our means. Uh, we're rich, it's just that we spend it all. <laughs> and that's part of the cultural conditioning. We, 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 so we feel poor, even though we've got a whole lot of stuff to show for it. You see what I'm saying? So we don't feel wealthy, but, but a lot of us are wealthy. We also don't feel wealthy necessarily because it's part of fallen human nature that we tend to compare ourselves to the 4% of people who got more than we have, rather than the 94% of the people who have got less, less than we have. So I can look at Donald Trump and I don't feel very rich, but if I compare myself to anybody in Haiti, I'm ridiculously rich. We don't feel wealthy, but, but uh, a lot of us are. And uh, so this warning here, I mean, we are the 5% in Palestine. A lot of us are the 5% in Palestine. And hopefully we don't exploit people. I'm hoping nobody hearing this message directly exploits people. But we've got to be aware of the reality that we're part of a political, social, economic system that does exploit people. And we are the benefactors of that. See what I'm saying? And so that means we have to pay attention to this word here. It's a strong word. It's a strong word. And this auditorium is very, very quiet. I feel very alone up here. <laughs> okay, hang on, hang on. Um, here's the thing. We have to ask the question, very important question, the question that's asked all too infrequently, and that is, what is motivating James to come down on the rich the way he does? What's motivating him? Which is to ask the question, what is a distinct kingdom perspective on wealth? What's a distinct kingdom perspective on wealth? See, here's the thing. In the world, the, you hear a lot of, of railing against the rich. And that's been that way throughout history. But in the world, the way it's usually done is, is something like this. We're mad at the rich people because they got stuff that we don't have. We're mad because we want some of what they got. What they got is money. Uh, in the world, the way you rail against the rich is, is, is kind of, uh, always, always has this feel of, of um, I want my fair share. I want what's coming to me. You know, it, it, I, I want it to be evened out a little bit more. 
in the world, whenever there's railing against the rich, it always has this feel of, of a, I'm sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of these CEOs giving themselves multi-million dollar bonuses when, when I am being thrown out on the street because I can't make my mortgage payment. And that's understandable for sure. That's the way the, the, the world always uh, has their objection to the gulf between the rich and the poor. Um, you see that with the, the Occupy Wall Street movement. They're sick and tired of, of uh, what they're seeing with the bonuses and sick and tired of, of the, the pressure that they feel to make ends meet. And that is, uh, how can you not be sympathetic to that? But here's what we need to see. As justified as that frustration is, understandable as it is, as sympathetic as you might be towards that movement, it is it's motivated by self-interest. Of course, that's how everything in the world operates. It's motivated by self-interest. It's motivated by a, um, uh, a, a power over strategy, which means they're trying to get an upper hand to force change, to coerce change, to, to put some laws in place that are going to result in, in, in a, a, a more, more equitable distribution of resources. Self-interest, it's a power over strategy, and it's motivated by a sense of superior political wisdom or political insight. Uh, the assumption driving this is that we know that the economy would work better and we know that the poor would be better served if we could put restraints on how much the wealthy can, can earn for themselves and if we could force a more equitable distribution. We know that that would be good for the economy and would be good for the poor. Um, and, and, and so given the disparity between the rich and the poor, the growing disparity in this country, it's hard for me at least not to be sympathetic to this movement. But what I, I, I want us to see is that there's nothing distinctly kingdom about that motivation. You may agree or disagree with the movement itself, but there's nothing distinctly kingdom about it. You may agree that if we put restraints on what the wealthy can earn and, and, and had a, a forced distribution of resources, that it would be good for the economy and serve the poor. On the other hand, you might disagree with that. You might think that if we put more restraints on the, 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 the wealthy and, and had a forced distribution, that that would actually, in the long run, hurt the economy and hurt the poor. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I can't balance my own checkbook. I'll leave that to the experts. But even the experts disagree over that. But I don't care what you think about that. What we do need to see, kingdom people, what we do need to see is that there's nothing distinctly kingdom about that movement. You can be sympathetic to it, but there's nothing. That's not a distinct kingdom methodology. It's not a distinct kingdom strategy. I've had uh, a number of people in the last several months uh, try to encourage me through Twitter and email to throw my hat in the ring on, on this movement. Uh, join Jim Wallace and Sojourners, and there's some others who are, who are kind of owning this as a, as a Christian cause. And I just have refused to do it. And the reason I refuse to do it is not because I don't think they, they've got a point to make on a strictly human level. Yeah, sure. But the reason is because there's nothing distinctly kingdom about that, and I'm to be an ambassador of the kingdom. See, in the kingdom... We're not motivated by self-interest. No, we're motivated by other-oriented love, right? And in the kingdom, we're not about demanding our rights and our fair share. Uh, in the kingdom, we're about dying to our rights. And in the kingdom, we're not about trying to get more. We're, we're about trying to give more. In the kingdom, we're not about having a power over strategy to, to force change. We're, the power we use is the power of Calvary, the, the humble power of self-sacrificial love. And in the kingdom, we're not out to try to fix the world with our superior political wisdom. Because frankly, folks, just because you're a Jesus follower doesn't mean you've got any superior political wisdom. Following Jesus may make you more stupid at that, but it won't make you smarter. In the kingdom, 
we're motivated by a, a, a desire, it's like we sang about earlier, to, to transform the world by humbly manifesting the beauty of the reign of God. And we do it by how we live and, 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 and how, we, how we are in community with others and how we impact the world that way. See, here's the thing. And Lord, help us to see this. As harsh as, harsh as James was in those six verses in chapter 5, James was giving his warning to the rich as much for the sake of the rich as for the sake of the poor. James was, as harsh as that was, he was motivated by a love for the rich. If you read that statement, there was nothing there that sounded anything like the Occupy Wall Street movement. There was no self-interest there. There was no, I want my fair share thing. He's not trying to force a, a, a redistribution. He's telling them to, to, to share, but not just so he could get a, a, his fair slice of the pie. He's saying, share for your own sake, for your, for your salvation. This stuff is destroying you. He's warning them about the dangers of what they're hanging on to. See, in the kingdom... In the kingdom, it's not, it's not first and foremost, about who's got what. In, in the kingdom, it's, it's, it's rather about the dangers of the stuff that we are inclined to cling to. It's about the dangers of wealth. What James is saying is this. It's dangerous for you to cling to stuff that is already corroded. When you cling to stuff that's already corroded, you're corroded with it. If you cling to the stuff that's already been, been eaten up, you'll get eaten up with it. If you cling to the stuff that's already been destroyed, you get destroyed with it. It may taste good right now as you live high on the hog, but it's poison that you're swallowing and it's going to come back on you. James is motivated by a love for the rich as much for the poor. So he's saying share in order to save yourselves, which really brings us to the distinctly kingdom perspective on wealth. It's not about who has what. It's not about judgments over, over who was born lucky and who wasn't born lucky. It's not about judgments on how we're going to fix the economy by, by uh, you know, forcing this or that kind of a change. In, in, in the kingdom, the perspective on wealth is not about anything that has to do with the Occupy Wall Street movement. In the kingdom, the issue about wealth is this. It's about what it can do to you if you're not careful and therefore about what you must do with it. You got that? Negatively, it's about what it can do to you. And positively, it's about what we, kingdom people, who have wealth, what we're to do with it. That's the kingdom perspective. You see this in Paul in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Amen to that but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Whoa. Command them to do good. Command them to be rich in good deeds and can command them to be generous and willing to share. So Timothy's a pastor and apparently he's got uh, some wealthy people in his congregation. Lucky Timothy. Notice Paul doesn't go on an Occupy Wall Street rant against them. He doesn't do that. What he does is he encourages the wealthy to thank God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Wouldn't hear that very much in the Occupy Wall Street movement. God provides everything for our enjoyment. He's saying, look, you got lucky. You got lucky. It's an unfair world and you're benefiting from this. Uh, so remember that every good gift comes from the Father above. And, and so uh, you thank God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. But he doesn't stop there. No, he's just getting warmed up. Yes, you can, you can enjoy that. You know, you're not going to make the world a fair, fair uh, place by, by being miserable about it. You know, you can enjoy it. But like James, he says this. 
he gives a, a strong warning. Beware, you who have a lot of this. Because remember, there's something corrosive about wealth. There's something corrupting about wealth. There's something destructive about wealth. Wealth has the power, if you're not careful, to make you arrogant. Wealth has the power to suck you into putting your hope into it and your trust into it and your security into it, which means you're not putting your hope and trust and security in God. No, there's something about wealth that makes itself into a competing God and says, adore me, worship me. There's something about wealth that can cause us to forget that every good gift comes from the Father uh, above. There's something about wealth that can cause us to, 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 to lose our gratitude or that can make us forget that we just got lucky. Uh, and there's something about wealth that then can make us forget that, that, that we have a responsibility to others to share. We can actually think we deserve all this stuff. There's something about wealth that can deceive us and, and destroy us, that makes us want to consume it and, and, and hoard it, and then it destroys us. So what Paul says is, yeah, you can enjoy it. Yeah, you know, God gives it for enjoyment. That his kingdom was supposed to be enjoyed. But, 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 make sure that, you're, that, that you do good deeds with it. Make sure, if you're rich, well, here's how you should be rich. Be rich in, in doing good deeds. And be rich in sharing. Give it generously to others. That is the kingdom perspective on wealth. Yes, be rich in good works. Generous. It relates a little bit to what we said last week about this pollution of this world. Uh, James says to care about the orphans and the widows and to stay free from the pollution of the world. The pollution of the world is, is this tendency, this fallen atmosphere that we breathe that, makes, that inclines us to grab onto stuff that has already passed away and to hoard stuff. And so James says, stay free from the pollution of this world in order that now you can care about the orphan and the widow and the, uh, the poor and the homeless. There's something about wealth that it's got a gravitational pull, a gravitational pull that sucks us in if we're not careful. In fact, the truth is, the truth is that there are principalities and powers, demonic forces at work in wealth. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to call it Mammon, which is the name of a god, a rebel god. There's this rebel god that, that, that infiltrates money, and, and, and it, it's that power, this demonic power that draws us, it has a sense of gravity that, that makes us, inclines us to grab onto it, to hoard it, to spend it all on ourselves, to lose our perspective, to forget that we just got lucky, to think that we deserve it, to forget about the 95% that's below us. It's this god Mammon that pulls us in, like gravity. And... Just as the bigger the planet is, the more gravity it has. You, you, you've had Astronomy 101, right? The bigger the planet, the more gravity it has. If we were all on Jupiter right now, we'd be 20 times heavier. Aren't you glad you're not on Jupiter? Because uh, it's, it, it's so much bigger. So the, the more gravity it has, the more it pulls us. So also, all other things being equal, the more mammon we got, the more it pulls us. The more it pulls us in. Which is why all the studies show, and there's beautiful exceptions to this, and I know of a couple. But all other things being equal, statistically, the more money people have, the less they tend to give away. I, I, I read a study a couple of years ago which said, showed that church attenders who make over a million dollars, on average, gave six times, six times less than church attenders who make $30,000 a year or less. Think about that. Six times. Now, they gave, they gave a lot more in terms of the sheer sure amount, but percentage-wise, they gave much, much less. The power, the gravitational pull of mammon, it sucks us in. It takes a very mature, very mature follower of Jesus to stay true to the kingdom while sitting on a lot of mammon, because there's a whole lot of money that, 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 that is pulling you in. So here's the bottom line, folks. When scripture commands 
us who can do something about this. But it commands us to care about the orphans and the widows and the poor and the homeless. It's not just for the sake of the orphans and the widows and the poor and the homeless that it tells us that. Now, it is for their sake for sure because God has a heart for them. And God wants them taken care of and God wants to use us to do it. So it is for their sake, but it's not only for their sake. It's also true that God calls us, and we have over and over again, all these commands about caring for the orphan and the widow and the poor and the homeless for our sake. We who can do something about it must do something about it because if we don't do something about it, it will be destroying us. The only way to fight the gravitational pull of mammon is to keep on giving it away. The only way to fight that diabolical force that pulls us in, that wants to, that inclines us to consume it and be destroyed by it, the only way to fight that is by living with outrageous generosity. Only by heeding Paul's command and by being, however rich we are in wealth, we have to be that rich in good works. Only by heeding that and living with, us, with outrageous generosity can we stay off the, the, the diabolical forces that cause us, incline us to be greedy, that incline us to, to, to hoard, that cause us to, to, to become apathetic towards the plight of the poor and the homeless. Only by living, constantly living with, with outrageous generosity can we be doing spiritual warfare. And it is a form of spiritual warfare. You're doing spiritual warfare when you give stuff away for your own sake, not only for the sake of the one you're giving to, but for your own sake as you're fighting off the gravitational pull of the God mammon. And it's for our sake to live with outrageous generosity and be doing warfare by by giving stuff away because only by living with outrageous generosity can we begin to enter into the joy of the kingdom. Only then are we blessed, James says. We're blessed when you're in a position where you can give. Only then, by living with outrageous generosity, can we enter into the, 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 the truth and the joy of the truth of the principle that, that, that uh, uh, if, we, if, we, if we lose our life, we find our life. This is the center of the kingdom, folks. Only by living with outrageous generosity do we discover the joy of, of being able to give to others and to serve others and to come under others and to manifest the beauty of God's kingdom and to manifest the beauty of God's character and to manifest God's heart for the poor. The only way to do that is by living, committing to living with outrageous generosity. Otherwise, it sucks us in. It sucks us in. James here, he's not an Occupy Wall Street guy. Uh, you know, I don't know what he would have thought of that, but, but, but I, I, he's a kingdom guy. And he's, 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 when he blasts the rich, he, he's doing out of love. He's warning them, be careful, be very careful. Be very careful because that stuff can suck you in, the pull of the God of mammon. You may agree or disagree with the philosophy of Occupy Wall Street or whatever. Um, that's, that is what it is. But whether you agree or not, our distinct kingdom call is not to Occupy Wall Street to confront the rich to get more mammon. It may be just, but it's not kingdom. Our distinct kingdom call is to occupy the kingdom and to serve the poor by resisting mammon. By resisting the pull of mammon, uh, that's what frees us up now, to have a heart for and an ability to help the orphan and the widow and the poor and the homeless. So never is the pull of mammon stronger than it is right here at this time of year. And so this is a good opportunity for us to say, kingdom people, stay awake. You have resources, like I do. You who are the top 5%, top 10%, stay awake, resist the pull, live with outrageous generosity, submit all your, your resources to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Live with outrageous generosity. And note, giving to your own kids and, and, and to your loved ones, that, 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 that's generous maybe, but that's not the kind of generosity that, that the New Testament is talking about. Um, no, it, it's when it's the folks who otherwise would be off your radar screen. I, I, there's part of me that would love to, 
you know, just to, just to bust the bank and, and, and just give my kids and my grandkids the Christmases all, all, all Christmases. You know, that I had their eyes popping out and look at these super toys, never expected this. You, you know, just to be extravagant in, in, in just giving them all sorts of stuff. I'd love to do that. Every, every grandparent would. But I have to remember, and we all have to remember that our kids aren't our only kids. Um, there's other kids out there too that are God's kids, and therefore I have some responsibility to them. And uh, they need a Christmas too. Even more importantly, they need food and they need shelter. And, uh, uh, and, and so while I, I bless my kids, I also have to live with an attitude and a heart to bless them as well. In fact, in the kingdom, we as much as possible tear down the wall that divides us and them. Now, those are our kids out there, folks. Those are, those are our, 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 our brothers and sisters out there. And some of you are right here in this congregation. Praise God for you being here. Um, and, and so we are to always make space, make space, make space. In our hearts, in our minds, as we're shopping, going about our lives, making purchases, make space to keep those who are most invisible, those who are most vulnerable, on our radar screen. Make space in our hearts. Make space in our lives. Make space in our banks. And God willing, and if we'll step up to the plate and do our fair share in this, our part in the kingdom here, we'll make space in this building. Make space in this building to welcome them in and to serve them and to manifest the kingdom in a profoundly, profoundly beautiful way. Amen? Amen. 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 I'm going to close in prayer. Yes. I'll close in prayer uh, just that, uh, that the Holy Spirit will seal this message on our heart. And as I do, I want to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here and have any need whatsoever, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks, whether it's about finances or something else. Just come up and this is what the body of Christ is for. If you want to make a contribution to the Making Space campaign, you can do that out in the, uh, at the Hub. Um, and um, yeah, just walk in the love of God. So Father, I, I, I pray here as we close this service. Abba, Father, we acknowledge that, it, that every good gift comes from you. Every dime we've got comes from you. Every ounce of health we have comes from you. Everything we wear ultimately comes from you. Um, and, and we want to acknowledge you for that. And those of us who got lucky, Father, I, I pray that you'd um, really just be working in our hearts and leading us and guiding us as to how, how we should steward your resources. God, I, I pray protection against any who might feel guilty about enjoying anything. Father, I help them to enjoy. But Father, I pray also that you balance that with giving us your heart for the poor and the homeless and, um, and to, to uh, have the, all of them always on our radar screen and to be obedient to you as your spirit leads us and how we should steward your resources. In Jesus' name and all of God's kids said. Amen. God bless you guys. Love on the world. Build the kingdom.